Have you ever wanted to know more about African history? Maybe you wish you knew more about the Kingdom of Oxum, Byzantium's powerful Christian ally in the Indian Ocean region. Or maybe you wanted to know more about the Ashanti Empire, an early modern empire who handily defeated the British in multiple wars. Well, check out the History of Africa podcast, where we take a deep dive into the history of the wars, cultures, governments, and economies throughout Africa. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podcast Addict, or wherever you're listening to the history of Byzantium. Now, back to Robin. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 227. Just take the damn city. Last time. We followed Alexius Komnenos's son John during his first decade in power. A series of conflicts in the Balkans kept him tied down in the West, and though he dealt with them well, he was keen to turn his attention back to Anatolia. Today, we follow his second decade as Vasilevs, where John would campaign relentlessly in the East as he tried to complete his father's mission and bring Antioch back into the empire. By 1127 AD, Anatolia was quite the crowded chessboard itself. Several polities controlled different parts of the peninsula and regularly slugged it out as they attempted to gain an advantage over their rivals. I've updated our regular map to help you understand it all. You can find it at thehistoryofbyzantium.com, either with this episode or on the maps page. Obviously, the Byzantines held the western seaboard and two major ports along the south coast, Atalia in the centre and Seleucia in the east. The Byzantines also controlled Cyprus, which meant these southern ports were not as isolated as they might seem. Thanks to John's campaign's last episode, the Byzantines now held Sozopolis, a fortress on the plateau, and several other forts on the road to Artalia. Beyond that, though, the plateau, which dominates the centre of Anatolia, was largely a Turkish playground. All year round, the nomads pushed their herds back and forth across the grass. Many of these groups operated independently, and were only loosely controlled by the two Turkic states in the region. Those states essentially occupied the same locations as the old Armeniacon and Anatolicon themes. In the south were the Seljuks of Iconium. This group occupied the direct overland route to Antioch and had therefore been targeted by Alexius and the Crusaders. And then in the north were the Danishmens, with their capital at Neo-Caesarea. The picture gets even more complicated when you move into Cilicia in the southeast, but We'll get to that later. Remember that when Bohemond was defeated, he signed a treaty granting the Romans ultimate control of Antioch after his death. He swore oaths to Alexius and his son, so John had fully inherited his father's belief that retaking Antioch was the key to restoring Roman power in Anatolia. To get to Antioch, though, was no easy matter. John had to somehow cow the Turks so that they wouldn't block his path and stop them from raiding imperial territory while he was away from the capital. (music) 
John attempted to get things started in spring 1130 with a campaign against the Danishmans. But he had to rush home almost immediately when he heard that his brother Isaac was plotting against him. John quickly turned around and marched home. When Isaac heard he was on the way, he and his son fled the capital and disappeared into Anatolia. Isaac made his way to the court of the Danishmen Turks in the hopes that they might support him. The Danishmens were at present the strongest power in Anatolia. They'd recently captured Melitene from a rival emir and killed Bohemond's son in battle. The Turks were happy to receive such a valuable guest, but they weren't going to march on the Bosphorus anytime soon. Back at Constantinople, an angry John stayed at home for another year to make sure his regime was secure. He married several of his children to leading Byzantine military commanders to make sure that future treasonous chatter would fall on deaf ears. He also helped oversee the construction of a new monastic complex, which was to act as a mausoleum for the new dynasty. The monastery of the Pantocrator still stands in Istanbul to this day, and can be visited on a very fine history tour that I know of. By spring 1132, John was ready to campaign again. He wanted to clip the wings of the Danishmens, who had been raiding imperial territory in the north of Anatolia. So the emperor led his army to Castamon in Paphlagonia. I've marked it on the map. It's about halfway across Anatolia, 60 miles or 100 kilometers from the north coast. Castamon was the ancestral seat of the Komninoi family and a highly defensible fortress, so John had strategic concerns and public relations on his mind. The Byzantines surrounded the fortress and eventually it surrendered. The emperor then led the army on a raid into Danishman territory. He took his captives back to Constantinople and celebrated a triumph something not seen in the capital for a long time, and clearly designed to further cement John's position as Vasilevs. Unfortunately, the Danishmens retook Castamon early the next year. This was the problem of trying to retake Anatolia one fortress at a time. So long as the nomads controlled the plateau, they could easily reach these sites and surround them. In spring 1134, John gathered his army and went to take it back. But his wife, who'd crossed over to Anatolia to see him off, died soon after he left, and then both John and his son fell ill. There was even an attempt by Isaac's supporters to see if they could sneak him back to Constantinople. Understandably, the campaign was abandoned. John's luck began to turn later that summer, though, Ghazi, the leader of the Danishmens, died, and his sons fought amongst themselves, leaving the path to Castamon free. John spent the next two years subduing Castamon and Gangra, another fortress city about a hundred kilometers to the south. The emperor used catapults and other stone-throwing siege weapons to batter the houses of ordinary people until the population convinced their Turkic garrison to leave. John returned home satisfied with his achievements. It had been a trying period, with the death of his wife and the betrayal of his brother. The fighting had been hard going, and though Castamon would remain in Roman hands for a while, 
Gangra was soon retaken by the Turks. Still, there was now an imperial presence in Paphlagonia, the Danishmen advance had been checked, and John was securely in control of the empire. The Turks of Iconium were also struggling with the fallout from civil war, and so, after 18 years of patiently waiting, the time finally seemed right to march to Antioch. John had been laying the groundwork for this campaign for some time. From the Byzantine perspective, the Latins had broken their word and were illegally occupying Antioch. And despite the fact that Bohemond had signed a treaty where he admitted exactly that, this was not the narrative prevalent in Western Europe. There, the common perception was that Alexius had abandoned the crusade and that Antioch had been won fair and square with the blood of Christian heroes. The problem for John, then, was how to get Antioch back without outraging Western opinion. John had seen firsthand how easy it had been for Bohemond to raise an army with papal backing for an invasion of Byzantium. The Normans of Italy remained the gravest threat to Constantinople, and John couldn't risk being stranded in Syria while his empire was attacked from that direction. Fortunately for him, war was brewing in Italy, giving him a small window in which to act. Bohemond's cousin, Roger of Sicily, was now the leading man in southern Italy, and he had angered the German emperor, Lothar III. The Germans still claimed the whole of Italy as part of their empire, and temporarily the Pope backed the Germans against the Normans. John sent an embassy to Lothar, promising him, Byzantine support for this campaign. With Italy in turmoil and Anatolia quiet, John had to get moving. He gathered the largest army he could muster, perhaps 15,000 men, and marched for Atalia in autumn 1136. The army spent the winter there so that they could be poised to move into Cilicia as soon as spring arrived. Cilicia, as you know, was a pocket of nice Mediterranean farmland in the southeast corner of Anatolia, ring-fenced by the Taurus and Amanus Mountains. Power was divided in the area between the Latins of Antioch, who controlled the cities, and two Armenian dynasties who ruled the highlands. These were the descendants of the families who Basil II had absorbed into the empire. After Manzikert, they had seized control of the area. John's army arrived in spring 1137 and swept all before them. The campaign had been meticulously planned, with ships nipping back and forth to Cyprus to keep everyone supplied. The first city encountered was Tarsus, garrisoned by the Latins. John sent messages to the civilian population, asking them to throw their garrison out and promising a peaceful occupation. But they didn't act, so John turned his siege weapons on them. After a barrage of missiles splattered the streets, the gates were flung open. The emperor acted with kindness, peacefully garrisoning the city anyway, and meeting with the leading citizens personally. John made it clear that imperial rule was here to stay, and that he expected these men to serve him well. 
this clemency worked nicely. When John's army approached Adana and Mopsuestia, each opened its gates promptly and its people were treated well. The only exception was Anazarbos, a fortress town whose position up in the mountains gave its Armenian garrison hope of holding out. John attempted to negotiate, but his scouts were driven off. He brought up his catapults, but because of the position of the city, they were vulnerable to counterattack. Eventually, John's men built clay brick walls around their siege machinery, which prevented them from being hit. After several days of bombardment, the city's walls began to crumble and the garrison surrendered. It's difficult to think of another emperor who used projectiles as much as John Komnenos. I don't remember it coming up a lot in Justinian's era, and during Nicephorus Phocas's day, the favoured tactic was to undermine walls rather than pelt them from a distance. The suggestion of modern historians is that John was trying to preserve his army, to avoid the inevitable casualties that came with a direct assault. He was a long way from home, after all, so there was no hope of reinforcement. He also had to garrison the cities he'd captured, which meant leaving men behind, and he knew he'd need every soldier he could spare if he was going to intimidate the garrison of Antioch. The campaign had been a complete success so far, and John installed Roman bishops in each city, replacing the Latins who'd held sway since Tancred's day. Cilicia was by now a largely monophysite place, and John was careful to conciliate their leaders, assuring them that no persecutions would be coming. The emperor was trying to build a coalition of support to help him secure this region as a permanent reconquest. He set up a mint nearby so that the people would use Roman currency, which of course was adorned with images of John himself. By late summer, though, the Vasilefs had moved on and made his way to the Orontes River. Soon he was staring up at the mighty defences of Antioch itself. The Romans seized Alexandretta, the nearest port, and began to pelt the walls with their siege engines. But the fighting soon stopped as Antioch's leaders begged for an audience and entered negotiations with the emperor. The Latins hadn't been enjoying much success since the First Crusade. Their Muslim neighbours had learnt not to rush headlong into battle, and slowly their numerical superiority had begun to tell. Both Antioch and nearby Edessa were coming under serious pressure. Their leaders were therefore not averse to accepting some kind of deal with Byzantium if it strengthened their position. John entered these negotiations in a position of apparent strength. His army was at the gates, and he had the legal documentation proving that Antioch was his. It seemed like he would make the Prince of Antioch, Raymond of Poitiers, into his vassal, and eventually absorb his territory back into the empire. But that's not exactly what happened. The two men did sign a deal that said basically that, but with an important proviso. Raymond would become subject to the empire, and he would hand Antioch over, but only when John provided him with a new kingdom in exchange. This kingdom would be the lands to the east of Antioch, made up of the cities of Aleppo, Shizar, Hama, 
and Homs. This was essentially the same deal which had been offered to Bohemond decades earlier. For the Romans, this would be an ideal situation. They would get Antioch back, and they'd have a crusader state protecting its eastern frontier. Raymond could then deal with all the flack coming from the Muslim world, while the Romans focused on retaking Anatolia. The only problem with this plan is the whole conquering four large Muslim cities part. Nicephorus' focus had broken into Aleppo once, but its citadel was virtually impregnable. Basil II had decided that it wasn't even worth the trouble trying to conquer Aleppo. The Latins, who'd been in the area for several decades now, had been unable to make a dent in this region, so quite what made John think that this conquest would be possible is beyond me. Perhaps his string of superb campaigns had given him a false sense of the capabilities of his army. But even if he had taken each city reasonably quickly, the whole campaign was a huge risk. It meant marching deep into Syria, stretching his supply lines, and exposing himself to attack from other Muslim states. The campaign also relied on the Latins cooperating and keeping their word, which John should have known was doubtful. Raymond of Poitiers must have emerged from the negotiations grinning inside. He was in a no-lose situation. Either he would be given a new kingdom, or he'd stay in Antioch. All the risk was being carried by John. When I began reading about what took place, I was muttering to myself, well, the title of this episode. But it's important that we try to reconstruct John's point of view, rather than judge him with the benefit of hindsight. It seems to be the case that the emperor was trapped between a nightmare worst-case scenario and a slightly fantastic best-case scenario. The worst-case scenario looked something like this. Negotiations fail, so John tries to take Antioch by force. The attack fails, and John suffers heavy casualties. On his march home, his tattered army is ambushed by the Turks and wiped out. Back in the West, the Pope is so outraged by the attack on Antioch that he launches a new crusade, which takes Constantinople and murders John's entire family. The best-case scenario would be that John easily captures Aleppo and hands it over to Raymond. He then leaves a garrison in Antioch and marches home victorious. Messages now flood in from the Pope, the German Emperor, and the King of France, hailing him as a crusading hero. Not only have you redeemed your father's misdeeds, but henceforth we will never speak ill of Byzantium again. In fact, here are some more crusading troops to help you fight the Turks. I am fully sympathetic to John when it comes to the potential negative consequences of attacking Antioch. It would have outraged Latin opinion, and we saw last week how much damage the Venetians alone could do when they turned on the empire. We should also remember that John's policy in Cilicia was one of peaceful occupation. He clearly didn't want to smash his way into Antioch, leaving the population traumatized and resentful of the return of imperial rule. But his decision to make the handover of Antioch conditional on conquering a whole new province 
seems very foolish. And that's without hindsight, just with a long experience of the realities of the region. Despite all our misgivings, we have to accept that John made the decision that seemed best to him in the moment. Once the agreement was signed, the emperor entered the city. The population cheered him along the streets, thrilled that peace had won the day. John stayed for a week or two, receiving a stream of Latin visitors who all bowed down before him. Imperial banners were flown above the city, and technically Antioch was once again Roman. Except that it wasn't. Raymond watched on cautiously from beside his new master. He had no intention of handing over Antioch until something much better was given to him, and tellingly, John returned to Cilicia for the winter. To be fair to him, the Danishmens had raided it while he was gone, so he needed to return in order to reassure the populace that he would defend them. John was itching to gain control of Antioch and was back at its gates as soon as winter was over. Perhaps his overconfidence about the conquest of Aleppo stemmed from the fact that he would not be marching there alone. No, he would be flanked by the forces of Antioch and Edessa which again, to be fair, created an impressive-looking army which might be expected to overwhelm most opposition. Soon after Easter, 1138, this allied force marched to Buza, a fortress about 35 miles east of Aleppo, and took it. Again, check the map if you want to follow along. John used his siege engines again to smash a hole through Buza's walls, forcing the defenders to sue for peace. The Allies stripped the place of its wealth, and John handed over control of the fort to the Count of Edessa, Jocelyn of Courtney. Uh, both Jocelyn and Raymond were French, by the way, in case that wasn't obvious. After ten days' rest, the army moved forward to Aleppo, but as we could have told him, John's scouts reported that the city would be very hard to take. Not only did it have formidable defences and a large garrison, but there wasn't much water or firewood in the region, making a prolonged siege impractical. So the emperor quickly moved on, deciding to take the other cities first, starving Aleppo of support. But this entailed marching 85 miles to the south to reach the next target, Shazar. It was here that John's amazing run of success finally came to an end. Shazar had a similar defensive structure to Antioch, in that a river offered it protection on one side and a mountain on the other. Its citadel, like Antioch's, was high up in the hills and out of reach. Since the Christians had had to march so far south, they had also given the locals plenty of time to prepare for their arrival. The initial skirmishes were not promising, so John turned once again to his engineers. His siege weapons hammered the walls of Shazar for several days until a section began to crack and crumble. The defenders abandoned the walls and headed for the hills. But as Allied troops entered the city, they found the population unwilling to submit, understandably. The Christians were forced to fight house by house and street by street, all the while, the garrison of Shazar fired upon them from above. John was forced to organise shifts for his troops so they could be rotated in and out of the city. 
The emperor even entered the fray himself to try and gain an advantage. But his coalition was fraying around him. Raymond and Jocelyn did not volunteer to join the hand-to-hand combat. Even the Latin historians admit that at this point they were reluctant participants. Raymond could see that his new domain would be far harder to rule than Antioch. Did he really want John to succeed? Probably not. With supplies running low and the days getting hotter and hotter, John was beginning to waver. When the emir of Shazar offered to pay him off, the emperor accepted. The emir emptied his treasury and the Romans trudged back to Antioch, weighed down with gold, but also a growing feeling that an opportunity had been lost. John kept up a positive public face, though. He made a triumphal entry into Antioch, with Raymond and Jocelyn following loyally behind him. The emperor then went through the motions as if this was his city. He distributed the loot he'd taken to the great and the good, and attended church services to thank God for the success of their campaign. John's brother Isaac even turned up to beg for forgiveness and was reconciled with the emperor. But below the public celebrations, all was not well. John gathered Raymond, Jocelyn and their subordinates and laid out his plans. He asked if he could leave his remaining treasure in Antioch's citadel to be used during their next campaign. He also wanted to leave a detachment of his troops in the city, along with some engineers who would begin constructing siege equipment for the next assault on Aleppo. None of these requests were unreasonable on their own, but in combination they sounded to the Latins like the next stage in a Roman takeover. As soon as John was out of the room, they began to plot against him. Jocelyn of Courtney went around the city, telling everyone he could that the emperor was about to take over the city and that locals would be evicted in favour of Romans. Riots broke out in response. The houses which hosted John's entourage were targeted with some members of the imperial household killed in the chaos. John strapped on his armour and furiously called his new vassals to join him. Jocelyn, in full sitcom mode, tore holes in his clothing and came stumbling into the emperor's presence, claiming he'd only just escaped from the mob himself. This characterization of the cowardly Jocelyn comes from a Latin historian, by the way, in case you think I'm showing my biases too shamelessly. Sensing he was in a no-win situation of his own making, John responded diplomatically. He said that since the people were not yet ready for a Byzantine garrison, he would return to Cilicia and they would all meet again next year. But at some point around now, John must have wondered if he should have just taken the damn city after all. Part of my criticism of John's plan stems from the narrow window of opportunity he had to act. Capturing Aleppo could have taken years of campaigning, but John didn't have that time. Once back in Cilicia, the emperor checked his inbox to discover a series of messages which confirmed the inevitable. The war in Italy had ended with the death of the emperor Lothar, and the pope had just written outraged about the eviction of Latin clergy from Cilicia. His letter actually urged John's Western mercenaries to stop serving the schismatic Greeks. Finally, John opened a note saying that the Turks were once more raiding imperial territory. 
Though the Emperor had achieved plenty, and he really had, don't get me wrong, he must have been questioning himself as he began the journey home. Next time, John will march again against the Turks of Anatolia and will make one final attempt to wrest Antioch from the Latins. He just needed more time to put the world to rights. Let's hope no cruel twist of fate robs him of the chance to complete the mission which Alexius had conceived some fifty years previously. While you're waiting for our next installment, why not try out the History of Africa podcast? As Andy said in his introduction, it could be a chance for you to learn about the other side of Justinian's strange intervention in Ethiopia, as well as learning more about how African history shaped the world. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts, or visit historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com to find out more about the show.